Matthew chapter 7, in verse 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. The Sermon on the Mount has been full of surprises. Remember the Lord's theme in the sermon. True righteousness. Not religious external things, but the true condition of the true heart. And when the Bible speaks of true righteousness, it's the kind that desperately desires to conform to God's will, to conform to God's character, to, to conform to Christ's word. True righteousness is pictured by Christ in chapter 5, verse 1, as you walk all the way through the chapter to, to verse 48, and then practice by believers in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, then again in verse 12. Jesus, in this sermon, has spoken about our worship. He has spoken about our wealth. He has spoken about our walk. And in this closing section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will speak about a series of tests. The test of self-denial. Will I walk the narrow way? That's this section. Verses 13 and 14. And then the test of fruit-bearing. What will come of my life? That's verses 15 through 20. And then there's going to be the test of obedience. Am I doing as well as what I'm saying in verses 20 at, at the end of the chapter? Well, let's pause for just a second. Those of you who went to school, whether it was junior high, high school, or college, you usually fall into two camps. Those who love tests and those who hate tests. It's okay, you can admit it right now. How many of you hated tests? Oh, look, the vast majority, just like in real life. You hate tests. And the reason why you hate tests is because you run the risk of failing the test. But let me help you think it through for just a moment. The tests that Jesus gives are purposeful tests to prove that our righteousness is from God because what Jesus is also going to explore and demonstrate is that counterfeit citizens and counterfeit kingdoms and counterfeit Christianity will not be able to stand up to the test. So the Sermon on the Mount is full of surprises, but the Sermon of the Mount is also full of choices. Two roads, the broad way to hell, the gate is wide and many will choose to stay on the path that leads to destruction, verse 13. Narrow is the road that leads to heaven in verse 14. The gate is narrow. Only a few find it. Later, like two animals, the, the prophets, there's going to be false prophets and true prophets. One pretends to be a sheep, appears to be harmless. 
but proves to be harmful in verse 15. The harmful, false teacher can rip you apart and true and false disciples will emerge from true and false teachers and on judgment day, the true disciples will be separated from the false disciples. The true will be rewarded and the false will be condemned. Two gates, two ways, two ends, two travelers, two decisions. You know, I'll never forget the song that played the night, that night, when the Lord invited me to leave the broad path, to abandon the path that leads to destruction, and to embrace the narrow gate. There was a group playing that night. They were called Country Faith, and it it featured a young man named Bill Sprouse and a young pastor named Tom Stipe. Chuck Butler from a a, a group called The Way and Tom Stite wrote a song. And the song that they sang went, two roads from which to choose. The rocky one or the Lord's new freeway. Choose before the Savior comes. The road to glory or the rocky one. Please decide Before the Lord descends, sweet road to glory or the bitter end. And it was as if the clouds parted. It was as if a rift was torn in time and space and an invitation was given to my heart to leave the world that I was walking in and the deadness and the emptiness because you see, it wasn't just simply a psychological condition of alienation and loneliness. There was a deep moral condition that was also a problem. My heart was broken and wrong. Jesus was calling me to make a personal choice between the broad road and the narrow gate. And some choices are easy to make. And some are hard. Every single person will eventually find themselves. You will find yourself at the crossroads. There's a place where consideration meets commitment. We either believe the truth about the gospel or we don't. We will believe in Jesus or we won't. We will believe that our moral and spiritual condition is broken or we won't. Ignoring Christ and his claims is still a choice and it will still result in a destination because the point that Jesus is making in the passage isn't simply the truth about the path but where the path leads. The exclusive claims of Christ and and Christianity bothered me more than anything that you can imagine. There was a lot of things about Christ and Christianity that I found suspicious. But the thing that I found most suspicious was the fact that 
Christians kept telling me over and over and over and over again that Jesus was the way and the truth and the life. And I thought, these people are narrow-minded bigots. Until I read this passage. Where Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. He begins by saying, read it for yourself. Enter. Enter by the narrow gate. The statement will, by the way, begin a brand new direction for this whole sermon. Jesus, remember, in verse 12 has said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. He's finished that portion of the sermon. And now he has has picked up a brand new way of thinking. Even most unbelievers concede that they like Jesus. They like this historical figure called Jesus. They like the miracles. They they like the moral compass. Some have even said, if people could just base their lives on Jesus' statements, on the Sermon on the Mount, but then they get to chapter 7, verse 12, and then they hit the wall of verse 13. They begin to realize when you remind them in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is asking for a consideration and a commitment. Jesus invites his listeners to enter the narrow, and I'm going to put difficult gate. Jesus is going to soon talk about false prophets. The reason why he does is because there's a danger of being deceived. But the greatest danger, the greatest danger is self-deception. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders already believe that they are righteous. And they already believe that everybody else is sinful. Some people, even self-described Christians, have fooled themselves into thinking that Jesus is simply one way among many ways, one of many ways to enter into a right relationship with God. Still others have fooled themselves into thinking that, that on the narrow path, it's really a broad way. Their bags are packed and it's loaded down with extra biblical supplies They remain on the broad way, but they think it's the narrow way. They remain on the broad way and they see a president. They see a talk show host. They see a a university president. They see their family. They see their friends. They see all of the people on the same road as they are. And they can't even for a moment believe that they're headed in the wrong direction. But look what the passage itself says. Enter. In order to enter, you have to exit. There's some place that you have to leave. When Jesus says enter, throughout the history of God's dealing with human beings, he's called people to himself. This is not some philosophy that you admire from a distance. He didn't say admire the narrow gate. He says, enter 
the narrow gate. Many people admire Jesus, but they're unwilling to obey Jesus and they're unwilling to walk in the direction that Jesus has asked them to walk. Jesus doesn't even say, choose from a number of different gates. Apparently, the gate is singular. There aren't three gates and there aren't four gates. In order to enter the narrow gate, you have to exit the broad gate. You have to leave the broad path. At the end of verse 13, it talks about the fool's highway. It says, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by it. Notice the contrast. Narrow, broad, many, few. This isn't my characterization. This is Jesus' characterization. Before I accepted Christ, I believed, I believed, I believed with all my heart that broad was the gate and wide was the way that led to life. I couldn't bring myself to believe that God would condemn a billion Muslims, Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Mormons, a billion Hindus, Hare Krishna, put the label, whatever label you want, put it on there. I remember when I would talk to these people and I would say, are you telling me a billion people are going to hell just because they don't agree with you? Are you telling me another billion people are going to go to hell just because they don't agree with you? Fortunately, the person who brought me to church that night didn't want to argue the Bible. He just, go, he just kept saying, I don't know, man, but you're going to see. <laughs> no, you don't understand how this works. We're going to enter into a theological debate. I'm going to humiliate you. You're going to see how stupid you are. I am going to win the debate. And then we're going to get to go on with our life. But God had a different plan. God wasn't just simply interested in answering my theological questions. He was interested in bringing me into a right relationship with God. And I had to get past this, this, this broad way. I, I, I had, to, I had to, to think differently. I couldn't bring myself to believe that so many people were headed in the wrong direction. And yet here it is. Jesus believed that a wide gate in a broad way led to destruction. Those are his words, not mine. Here it is. Jesus believed that a wide and a broad way led to destruction. And you can believe whatever you want. You can believe what you must, but you can't believe that Jesus holds the same position that you had hoped for. You may not like it. I certainly didn't at first, but I've come to believe and accept and defend what the Lord Jesus has to say. Not, not that he needed my vote. Not that God was in heaven and Jesus was in heaven going, finally Gino agrees with us. 
Really, the far more important question is, why do so many people believe that there are several ways? Why are so many people convinced that there have to be multiple paths to God? There has to be multiple roads that lead to righteousness. John Corson writes, and I quote, I suggest to you it's because our culture, our generation in particular, is more interested in equality than in truth. He writes, we're more afraid of being thought prejudiced or bigoted than being wrong. We're scared to death of being labeled narrow-minded, unquote. And there's the choice, isn't it? Narrow-mind. Narrow path, broad mind, open path. Whatever else Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that there aren't many paths. There are two roads, one narrow leading to life, one broad leading to destruction. And by the way, that word destruction is really interesting. In the original language, it's Apoloia. There was a word that was used to describe Satan. One of his many titles was Apoloion. It meant ruined. D.A. Carson writes about this word, Apoloia. Quote, he says, definitive destruction. Not merely in the sense of the physical extinction of physical existence, but rather of an external plunge into Hades and a hopeless destiny of death, unquote. He's talking about a place, not simply of extinction, but of universal ruin. And whatever else Jesus means by it, he says, guess what? It isn't determined by majority rules. Because as you look at what Jesus says, he's basically making the point, lots and lots and lots and lots of people seem to be going in a direction that is away from God and away from heaven. Well, isn't it possible that the narrow road and the broad road, these are metaphors for lifestyles, right? This is two different lifestyles. Maybe. Doesn't it simply refer to an easy life, a comfortable life, a popular life, as opposed to a difficult life or a dedicated life or a life of self-denial? That might be also true. But if one gate is marked surrender and the other gate is marked self-sufficiency, Jesus has already spoken at length on the issue of true righteousness and false righteousness. Later in Matthew's gospel in chapter 8, verses 19 and 22, in chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, a certain scribe is going to come to Jesus and he's going to say, teacher. I'm willing to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus will say, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples will say to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me. 
and let the dead bury the dead. There's going to be numerous examples of Jesus inviting people to follow him. This direction, this path is the path that he is on. The moment that Jesus will say to you, I want you to follow me, implicit in the invitation is the expectation of a question, and that is, where are you going? And you all know the answer. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He is going to be incarcerated, humiliated, executed. But he's going to come back to life. What is this? Whatever else it is, both paths are marked. Both paths have a destination. One leads to destruction. The other leads to life. Whatever this is, it seems pretty consequential. Both roads seem to begin here and end somewhere else. And the invitation that Jesus seems to be making is the fact that everyone, everyone, everyone is on a path that leads to destruction unless they take the exit. The wide gate is broad enough to accommodate the ease and comfort of the whole world apart from God, the whole world apart from Christ, the whole world apart from the gospel. Those who seek to avoid conflict and persecution and opposition, they can travel the road marked undiscerning and toleration. You would hope that if you're going in the wrong direction, and have you ever been on a road and you go, how come this road isn't clearly marked? Am I on I-25 or not? Am I going north or south? Which way am I going? And by the way, one of the ways that you know, that you know that you're on the path that leads to destruction is by the person sitting next to you and in back of you and in front of you, and all around you. You see, because the path to destruction has a, not more than, than eight great big lanes. If you can, on this path, look around you and you see thousands, hundreds, millions of people around you, then the chances are you're not on the right path because the right path, it's a singular path and the singular person that you're going to be able to see is one person in front of you and that person is Jesus. And every once in a while he'll turn around. And you'll see his eyes and you'll see his smile and you'll watch as he beckons you to keep going, keep following, keep going with him. It's a test. The wide gate is broad. Those who reject God, those who see God as a massive myth projection, a fabrication created by man, uh, and, and man as a creation of the cosmos, who believe matter created mind rather than mind creating matter, the people who have no problem rejecting the Bible's concepts of heaven or hell, the person who says, you know what, the Bible is filled with a lot of interesting information, but it's not true. And you say, which part of it is, isn't true? 
Well, the parts that I disagree with. <laughs> and you can see that they're absolutely comfortable in the broad way. To some, destruction is a return to the pre-molecular state, a swirling mass of hydrogen or stardust, and you're ready to go on the next cosmic merry-go-round because you believe in reincarnation. Destruction is the eventual destination of those who simply wind up at the universe's beginning. But Jesus says destruction is the eventual destination of everyone who reject God. And people might say, I don't reject God. Who reject Christ. They might say, I don't reject Christ. Or renounce God's plan of salvation. And there's part of the key. It isn't good enough that you just simply believe in God or you even believe in Christ. You see, in order to believe in Christ, you also have to believe his message. There have always been two roads. There's always been two religions. There's always been a way from God, and then there's always been a way to God. There's one way that includes repentance and return and reconciliation by faith. There is a way. There is a way. And even as you're looking at it and you go, well, wait a minute. I've been reading the Sermon on the Mount and I've been following what Jesus has said in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. And there's no speech concerning his death and his resurrection. What in the world is Jesus talking about? And you know what he's talking about because he's already talked about the kind of humility and how helplessness that a person has to admit. A person who wants to be a citizen in God's kingdom has to admit that they are helpless apart from him. They are helpless apart from his grace. They are helpless unless God's favor and God's grace is going to be a part of their life. The choice isn't really simply between religion and no religion. The choice isn't even simply between bad people and good people. The choice isn't simply between good and error. The choice is between God's grace and human achievement. The choice is between the religion of hypocrisy or a right relationship with God and Christ. And if a person has to be born into a certain race or achieve a certain level of intelligence or, or moral propriety or a certain economic status or, or vote for a particular candidate, then they can be excluded. But the Bible makes it clear that apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, apart from Jesus People aren't saved. This is why Paul is going to later say, there is only one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Jesus says there are two ways. One away from God, the other towards God. And you might be wondering why, why, why are there only two ways? 
By the way, it's for your safety and security because if there were six ways or 60 ways or 666 ways, make no mistake about it, you would choose the wrong one. How many ways does there have to be? How many ways will limited, frail, gullible people want to choose from? Limited, frail, gullible people want as many ways as there are people. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear. God's decided to make it simple for people like me. You would think if you saw a path that said, hey, just down the road is destruction. And then if you saw another path that was labeled life, even abundant life, how smart do you have to be to choose the path that says life? No, no, people will object. There are many paths to God. God is like a mountain. There are many paths that you can climb to get to the top of the mountain. I heard a story of, of this man who wanted to scale the top of the mountain. He, they, he had heard that there was a very famous guru at the top of the mountain. And that if he made it to the top of the mountain, he would find out the truth about life. And he would find out the truth about love. And he would find out the truth about religion. And so he sells everything that he can in order to get to the mountain. He hires Sherpa to help him climb to the peak. Some of them plummet to their death. But after an exhausting voyage and travel he makes his way to the top of the mountain and there on the top of the mountain is a man in the lotus position and he says welcome he recounted the story of how he got there of how it he had to sacrifice everything and people had to die in order for him to get there and he said you told i heard that you would tell me everything that's true and the man at the top of the mountain said Truth, truth is a flowing fountain. And the man fell to his knees and he began to weep and cry and sob. He said, you mean I've sacrificed everything and people have died to get me here and I come to the top of this stupid mountain and all you can tell me is that truth is a flowing fountain? And the guy at the top of the mountain says, you mean it isn't? Anyone can say anything about anything. Even me. You can evaluate what I'm saying and, and, and even ask the question, what makes you think that what you're saying is true? And it's a legitimate question. And the only thing that I can tell you is, if you wanted to know the real truth, the truth about, about what this life is all about and what life is all about and death is all about and what it means to come back to life, who are you going to go to in order to get the information that you need? You can embrace any teacher, any guru, any enlightened master. Some people reason the only thing that we have to worry about is if the person is sincere or tolerant of other people's views. Theologian Emery Bancroft wrote 
over a hundred years ago when he went to the first World's Fair in 1893, quote, some years ago a parliament of religion was held in Chicago in connection with the World's Fair. At that parliament, the great ethnic faiths of the world were represented. One by one, leading men arose and spoke for Buddhism and Confucianism and Hinduism and Islam. Then Dr. Joseph Cook of Boston, who had been chosen to rep Christianity, arose to speak. Quote, Here is Lady Macbeth's hand, he said, stained with the foul murder of Duncan. See her as she walks through the halls and corridors of her palatial home, stopping to cry out. I'm going to Use the friendly version. Outcursed spot. Cursed spot. Out, I say. Will these hands ne'er be clean? Then turning to those seated on the platform, he said, Can any of you who are so anxious to propagate your religious systems offer any cleansing efficacy for sin and guilt of Lady Macbeth's crime? Unquote. An oppressive silence was maintained by them all. Only the blood of Christ can purge the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There's only really one solution to the problem of sin. There's really only one solution, not just to the psychological condition of loneliness and alienation. I'm talking about the moral condition of being estranged from God because of sin. Listen to this letter to Dear Abby and her response, quote, Your answers to the woman who complained that her relatives were always arguing with her about religion was ridiculous. You advised her simply to declare the subject off-limits. Are you suggesting that people only talk about trivial, meaningless subjects so as to avoid a potential controversy? It is arrogant to tell people that there are subjects that they may never mention in your presence. You could have suggested she learn enough about her relative's cult to show them the errors contained in its teachings, unquote. Here's Abby's response, quote, In my view, the height of arrogance is to attempt to show people the error of their religion and the error of their choice, unquote. What an amazing answer. For some reason, it doesn't seem to occur to Abby that she's exercising the height of arrogance in her response. Since her very advice suggests that the reader is in error. Human choice, human will, human decision. For many people are more important than truth and biblical revelation, at least in Abby's mind. And even in my mind, before I became a Christian. It never occurred to me that Jesus had to make the choice so simple that even a wicked, broken person as foolish as myself could make the right choice. Dennis McCallum in a book writes, quote, in the past, intolerance meant bigotry or prejudice. 
That is, judging someone or excluding them because of the color of their skin or their country of origin or because of superficial understanding of what they might believe. It also implied a desire to use forces to oppose other people's point of view, unquote. And then he continues, quote, intolerance in the old sense offends most of us, unquote. And then he writes, in postmodern usage, intolerance has come to mean simply disagreeing with anyone else's beliefs. It's off limits. Arrogant, to use Abby's word, unquote. And so the moment you open up your Bible, the moment you turn to the book of Matthew, the moment that you turn to chapter 7, the moment that you read verses 13 and 14, And you consider the source that Jesus, in an unmistakable way, makes an unmistakable statement. The moment we admit that we believe the words of Jesus, we admit that there's only one road that leads to life. And clearly, whatever the other road is, it has as its ultimate destination a place marked destruction were labeled arrogant, intolerant, mean-spirited, insensitive. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that the followers of David Koresh or Jim Jones deserve to die? Do you think that the people who were deluded followers of Marshall Applewhite in Heaven's Gate who convinced his cult followers to drink poison and wait to hitch a ride into another dimension by a spacecraft that was parked somewhere behind an invisible star deserved to die? Do you think that sincerity and passion and discipline are sufficient virtues to turn the deluded captives away from hell? Do you think that the militant atheism or the gospel of human self-sufficiency will exonerate Hitler or Stalin or Mao or Pol Pot? Do you think that the fanatical zeal of Islamic terrorists guarantees them some consideration in the final judgment? You might say, well, Gino, those are all extreme examples of people who are obviously deceived. Oh, okay, I'll bite. How many paths are there? How many are there, friend? Six? Sixty? Six hundred? Like I said, even if there were 10 real paths and there aren't, Satan would counterfeit thousands that aren't real. Jesus Christ, speaking with the wisdom of his heavenly father, puts the dispute to full and final rest when he says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father. No one. No one. No one. No one comes to the Father. Except by me. You know, Billy Graham held a massive crusade years and years ago in Melbourne, Australia. And after the crusade, this letter was published in a local Melbourne newspaper. Quote, 
after hearing Dr. Billy Graham on the air, viewing him on television, reading reports and letters concerning him and his mission, I am heartily sick of the type of religion that insists my soul and everyone else's needs saving, whatever that means. I've never felt lost. Nor do I feel that I daily wallow in the mire of sin, although repetitive preaching insists that I do. Give me a practical religion that teaches gentleness and tolerance, that acknowledges no barriers of color or creed, that remembers the aged and teaches children of goodness and not sin. If in order to save my soul, I must accept such a philosophy as I have heard preached, then I prefer to remain forever damned. Unquote. There, there are people who won't leave the road. They, they won't leave. They won't get off. They refuse to leave the Broadway. But look what Jesus says in verse 14, because narrow, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few, there are few who find it. The way is narrow to protect us, to protect you and to protect me. The way is narrow God will become a man and Jesus will become flesh and he will dwell among us and the sovereign God will become a human being of flesh and blood. He will acquire a second nature. He will die a public humiliating death. He won't complain, not even once. And if there was any other way to save you, if there was a less humiliating way, if there was a less painful way in order to deal with your corrupt position, don't you think God would have taken it? If there were any other way, God would have been a fool not to take it. And God isn't a fool. And so the next time a person says to you, there has to be. There, there has to be. There has to be other ways to have a right relationship with God. You need to be able to tell them, perhaps you have underestimated the horror of your sin. Perhaps you've underestimated the justice of God. But just in case you've underestimated your sin, or you've underestimated his love, God has done exactly what needed to be done in order for you to have a right relationship with him. Ask them, how many religions admit human sin is a problem? Ask them how many religions offer a solution to the problem of sin. Ask them how many religions admit God is offended by sin. Ask them how many religions believe that God must punish sin. Ask them how many religions offer a permanent solution to the problem of sin. 
Did Muhammad die for you? Did Buddha sacrifice his life for you? By the way, true Buddhism is atheistic. It neither demands nor requires or even suggests belief in a personal God. Buddha never claims to be any kind of a deity or even the reincarnation of a deity. True Hinduism is pantheistic and believes everything and therefore nothing is God. In their worldview, Jesus is simply another ascended master along a long line of masters in witchcraft and paganism and American shamanism. They believe that the forces of good and evil can be dealt with by attempting goodness. But Jesus alone says, I'm the way. Jesus is the one and only Son of God, and there's, everyone else is an imposter. You see, the narrow gate strips us of all that we possess. When you come to this gate and you ask the question, what can I bring with me if I decide to leave the broad way that leads to destruction and enter the narrow gate, what is it that I can take with me? Well, the truth is you're going to have to abandon your sin. You can't take it with you. You have to let go of everything. Because there's only one thing that's going to go through the gate with you, and that's Jesus. The narrow gate demands repentance. It's not Jesus and everything else. Salvation is exchanging all we are for all he is. The narrow gate Repentance, being an American, having a religious roots, doesn't grant you special privileges. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, you and your sins must separate or you and your God can never come together, unquote. You can't keep one sin. You have to give them all up. Your life has to change. It can't almost change. Tim Hansel writes, quote, I was almost your person today, Lord. Then I thought what it would have been like if Jesus had done the same thing. What if God had almost revealed himself in Jesus Christ? What if Christ were almost born and almost lived and almost died? What if he would have said, ask and it will almost be given to you. Seek and you will almost find. Knock and it will almost be opened to you. What if he would have said, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I'll almost give you rest. And what if Jesus had told his disciples, For whosoever would save his life will lose it, and whosoever loses his life for my sake will almost find it. Unquote. Hansel writes, my almost Christianity took on a different light. I realized how many times I played the game of being one of Jesus' almost disciples. I recalled how many times I had prayed, almost believing, and walked through my days as if they were, as if he were almost risen. It was not a question of theology, it was a question of lifestyle. 
whether or not I had a lifestyle that could match what I said and what I believed, whether or not, as some have said, I could walk my talk, unquote. You see, Jesus hasn't died in order for you to almost get saved. The way of life is narrow and lonely and costly. We can walk on the Broadway and keep our baggage. You can walk on the broad gate that leads to destruction and keep everything you want. But you can't walk on the narrow gate and keep your sin. So the very first question you have to ask yourself is, did your profession of faith cost you anything? Warren Wiersbe writes, if not, then it was probably not a true profession. Many people who trust Jesus Christ never leave the broad road with its appetites and associations. They have an easy Christianity that makes no demands on them. Yet Jesus said the narrow way is hard. We can't walk on two roads in two different directions at the same time, unquote. My friend Dennis Agajanian says, you can't ride one horse with two butts. <laughs> In a few short verses, we're going to have another test. False teachers can only produce false doctrine, which can only produce false changes. False teachers can only produce false doctrine, which produces false changes. Did Jesus change your life? Because if the teaching of Jesus and the person of Jesus hasn't changed your life, you have every, every reason to be a little bit concerned. Truth? The narrow gate requires you to abandon your selfishness and your conceit and your pride and your lust because that's not the kind of baggage that's allowed. Samuel Logan Brengel was one of the truly great leaders in the Salvation Army movement, a man of scholarship and singular spiritual power. He spoke of the narrow road that leads to life. He wrote, quote, It's not won by promotion, but by many prayers and tears. It's attained by confessions of sin and much heart searching and humbling before God by self-surrender, a courageous sacrifice of every idol, a bold, deathless, uncompromising and uncomplaining embrace of the cross and by an eternal, unfaltering looking to Jesus who's been crucified. It's not gained by seeking great things for ourselves, but rather like Paul by counting those things that are gained as loss for Christ. That's a great price. But it must be unflinchingly paid by him who would not merely be a nominal, but a real spiritual leader of men. A leader whose power is recognized and felt in heaven, on earth, and in hell. Unquote. Two gates. 
two ways, two ends, two travelers. Two decisions. Do I stay? Or do I go? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person who's made the decision to go through the narrow gate, to walk with Jesus, to love him, Lord, I pray for the sad Christian who's trying to find a way to keep all of his or her sin and still walk with Jesus. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person. I pray for that person who's never, ever, ever, even once decided that the circumstances of their heart the loneliness and the alienation, the emptiness and the pain, not to mention the corrupt condition of a broken heart filled with sin. They've never abandoned their sin. Oh, they've asked for forgiveness. But they've never trusted Jesus to be their savior. They've never actually seen the exit marked, go this way for life. Lord, I pray that you would reveal it to them even now. Lord, I pray that they would see the exit sign marked the narrow gate. That they would see the sign clearly labeled life. That they would follow the sign that says, Jesus is here. Lord, I pray that they would abandon their sin and that they would ask forgiveness and that they would embrace Jesus as the Lord of love and life and hope and future. Lord, I pray that they would make the right choice. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.